Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award-winning author, two-time Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, I'm talking with my good friend, Georgia Dawkins, a.k.a. The Purpose Producer and the author of Everybody Knows the Power of Being in Position. So let me tell you a little something about Georgia. Georgia Dawkins is, as I said, the purpose producer. From ABC's Good Morning America to Will Packer's Central Ave, Georgia has worked within a multitude of television genres, including local news, network news, talk shows, reality television, and entertainment news. She's got receipts for days. In 2018, she launched Georgia Dawkins Media and published her debut memoir, Everybody Knows the Power of Being in Position, which details how she rose from humble beginnings, faced innumerable obstacles, and thrived in an industry that is known to be cutthroat and conniving. Through a mixture of faith, grit, determination, and raw and unadulterated ambition, Georgia shows the reader how to shift conversations through media and create content that helps people heal. In this episode, we discuss the power of purpose, why some bridges are necessary to be burned, and the vulnerability required to tell the truth. Black and published family, let's welcome Georgia to the show. All right, let's get started. When did you know that you were a writer? I think I always knew I was a writer. Um, maybe not, I didn't have maybe that word, but I knew I was a storyteller. How I, I knew you I, know that? Well, I knew I like to entertain people. Um, and I like to like make up stories. Like it kind of started with like music and poetry and, you know, maybe if I was in a girl group, this is what it would sound like. And so it started with like those stories about like friendship and then like, you know, whatever you thought was love at nine, Um, And then it kind of evolved into, oh, I can make this a career. It can be journalism. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's it's coming together, the storytelling aspect and what I should do with that gift. When did you first discover the power of storytelling through journalism? You know, I never really looked at it this way, but I can remember being like in elementary school um, and hearing about um, the death of Princess Diana um, and, and feeling that the way I did. And now, you know, that I can, I can look back and see the power of media to not know a person at all and to have their story told to you in all these different ways, so much so that you can feel like, you know, them. And so when they are lost, you feel that too. And so that's when I first started to see the power of media before I knew that that's what it was. And I think it was around 12, um, sixth grade when I knew that that would be journalism for me. Um, my uncle uh, worked for Black Press um, and he would often go to like games and like events and cover the Black celebrities. And I'm from a small town. I'm like, how do people even know who this guy is? But he had those types of connections and relationships. And I thought it was just really important you know, that he worked for Black media before I knew what Black media was and how hard that was at the time that he was doing it to tell those stories about us. 
don't know. I, I, I can understand that. Me growing up in Chicago, I always was aware of Black media because Ebony and Jet were headquartered in Chicago for just about all of their tenure until they moved to New York shortly before they closed. And so I think the power of the Black press has always been in telling our story. So how did you want to contribute to that once you got on this journey of journalism? At first, I thought that that looked like Oprah, of course, uh, Jackie Reed, BET Nightly News. If I'm going to be a, a Black journalist, and this is obviously what it looks like, because that's all I saw. Um, it wasn't until like high school when they started to like require us to write papers about our, you know, selected career paths. And I was like, why do I need to do research? I know exactly what I want to do. I don't know why I need to go find out all this extra information, but I'm so glad I did because that's when I was like, oh, there's more to journalism than TV. Magazines are included, newspaper, radio even. So, you know, to know that Tom Joyner is like really the king of radio, the king of black media low key, you know, but I didn't know that. (laughs) High key, major keys, all the keys. Thank you, Tom (laughs) Um, But to have that type of representation, um, I think it just really started to evolve for me between uh, high school and college, getting out into the real world and seeing what that looked like, you know? And so it was that first internship when I was like, oh, I don't have to be on TV. I don't have to be on TV to tell our stories. And also being on TV is really hard because people are really mean and they get really mean emails. But furthermore, I have more power in this medium as a gatekeeper, as a producer, as someone who's choosing uh, and, and curating the news of the day. That's my power. So let's talk about that, because you and I have similar paths in that we both went the producer route. And I don't know if you ever tried on air. I tried on air and I was like, you know what? I don't like making all those phone calls trying to get people to get back to me for a minute 15 story when I can write a whole show and have more control behind that. So that's how I got into the producing aspect of it. And I also found that as a producer, you have more influence in the content to to tell a complete story over whatever many minutes of the day your show is, be it 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever. So why why did you decide that producing was what it was going to be for you? And I know you touch on this story in your book, Everybody Knows. Um, I I actually did try the on-air thing for a little bit, um, especially when I was in Shreveport. Shreveport was so great for me at KSLA News 12. I got to touch so many things and also experience middle management as a senior producer. But I really had a great boss because she allowed me to come in and exercise other skills. I said, you know, I want to try reporting on the weekends. I want to just do the stories nobody wants to do. You know, if I can just go to that 5K that you didn't think could be a package. I can go turn it. I'll go out there and get some real people's stories, you know? And so that was fun. But also it it positioned me in the community in a way that made me a better producer, you know, having those real, those tangible uh, connections. Uh, when I knew that was producing for me was my first internship. I was a freshman at FAMU, Florida a and University. I was interning at WESH NBC News in Orlando. Um, and that is when I started to see how everybody's role played out, you know, outside of the textbook, outside of student media, 
getting into the real world and seeing that, no, that executive producer hates everything about this meeting. And so everything's about to change. Everything's about to change right now. This, this reporter or this main anchor has, has this specific contact. And so that gives them more power because that's their relationship. And so it was just that, that case study, that, that being inserted into the real world and just taking notes and interviewing people. On my first internship, when I was bored, yes, I got bored because I do the most. I would just go roam around and like talk to salespeople and talk to people in traffic. And so what do you do to learn everybody's role to make sure that, you know, as a good journalist, I'm making the most informed decision about my career. And so for me, it was producing gatekeeping, being that executive producer or the show producer, always knowing that end game for me was news director. Like I want to be a news director. I'm going to hire my friends because we need more representation. And so I'm going to be that. Yeah, that was the plan. Keyword is that was the plan because <laughs> now you've been from West to Good Morning America Fort Myers, KSLA, Tampa, you, you've produced at many different local shops. And at at some point, the goal changed. So when did the goal change that led you to write? Everybody knows the power of being in position. Whoa, 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 whoa. So many questions so fast. That's so layered. Okay. When did the goal change? Um, Significantly uh, the most significant wake up call I can remember was 2014. Um, that was, I was still in Shreveport at the time and I was just getting really overwhelmed with news. Like it was weighing me down. And I started to feel like news was suffocating my creativity And I can remember when we were in Fort Myers, I had a blog about like weight loss and it was just like my fun thing to do. But one of our EPs actually would read my blog and encourage me to write, encourage me to have that outside outlet um, that helped me become a better storyteller, even though I wasn't, you know, it was a new story. It was creative writing, you know, uh, journaling, blogging, whatever. And so I feel like I kind of lost that along the way. And I stopped putting into the projects that fulfilled me the most. Um, And when I felt like I couldn't reach for anything else in the newsroom, I was like, I'm going to grad school. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to grad school. I'm going to get a scholarship real quick because, you know, it's easy. I'm going to get a scholarship and I'm going to go to college again. And so (laughs) I got into uh, the CUNY uh, uh, City University School of Journalism, uh, New York City, Um, but I didn't get the scholarship. So I was like, whoa. Okay. All right. Okay. Pivot. All right. I'm going to pull over on the side of the road. I'm going to have a meltdown. I'm going to get back in the car and I'm going to have to figure out my next destination because I'm not going to grad school. I'm not paying for a degree that I really low. I I don't need this degree. I don't need it. Um, But I was like, oh, it could be good for teaching or for whatever I do down the road. So that, that was the wake up call 2014. I started applying for like fellowships and like any little thing that would keep me interested in the business that would encourage me. Um, But by 2015, I was done. I'm like, I can't, (laughs) I cannot, I can't do this anymore. And at that time I was in Tampa, 2015. I was the only black producer in the newsroom and I got laid off. 
I got laid off a year into my contract. This is like the highest I've gone in local news market 11. It's such a big deal. Um, but it really wasn't because I was so miserable in that season. I was so miserable in Tampa. I can't say that enough. Hated it, hated it, hated it. Two stars. Okay. Glad you're not looking to go back because that bridge is burned. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, that's a whole nother uh, topic, but learning how to burn the bridges, you know, um, I, I believe that some bridges are, are, it's necessary to burn them. I'm not, it's not safe for me to go back over that bridge. Why would I leave something that's falling apart up and to, uh, as something that is stable that I could walk back over or even waste energy into fixing something that is clearly falling apart and is not here to support me. So learning to let that go. Um, so yeah, it was, it was between 2014, 2015 that I had that wake up call, that shift. And, uh, after the layoff, I actually felt freed. I felt free because I was supposed to quit that job. I was supposed to leave. Um, but it happened the way it did. And I'm so grateful because, you know, you don't ever want to quit a job (laughs) before you have another one. And then you don't want to quit because of course you don't want to burn bridges. You don't want to do that. And so I'm glad it happened the way it did um, because it led me to Atlanta uh, shortly after. You started writing the book in Tampa though, right? Even though you did not finish until you were well into your career in Atlanta, right? Yeah, I started writing the book in 2016. Was it 2016? Yeah, 2016 after I was laid off in Tampa um, and I was just writing to heal. And I set the intention for the book that this book will not only heal me, but it'll heal the people around me. Everybody who touches this book will be closer to healing. And so I think that's why it took me so long. Like I started and I'd like write a paragraph here, a paragraph there. Um, But it was 18 months later before I actually picked it up again. And then it was just word vomit after that. It was just like, oh, okay, this book has been waiting on me to pour. And so I did in eight days and my own little writing retreat and time that I dedicated to, um, to my gift. So what did you learn from the time that you started writing in 2016 to the time that you vomited, vomited it all out in 2018? What was the growth for you that allowed you to finally tell your story in one, in basically one sitting? Value learning that I'm needed more than I'm actually giving myself credit for, that my gifts are needed. Um, I've been selling myself short, you know, the whole imposter syndrome and, you know, even down to negotiating and it just became so exhausting, but working in Atlanta and being able to freelance on different projects and get into talk shows and reality showed me a bigger picture of the business. Um, And so in seeing my role, I was playing too small and I felt like I needed to play bigger. And I felt like that play meant betting on Georgia and doubling down on Georgia. So in doubling down on yourself, how do you see your position now in both as both an author and as a budding media tycoon. I'm just going to put that there. <laughs> um, it's so weird. Cause now I feel like 
I've done so much and I'm back at that place that I was in 2018 when I started to write the book of don't forget to dream bigger. Don't forget to dream bigger than what's in front of you right now. And I'm in a place of transition where I'm like, what's bigger? What's bigger? And then what's bigger than that? And so to answer your question, I'm looking at where is my assignment next? Where am I to tell stories next? And who am I to bring behind me? Because no matter what show I'm working on, I'm always looking to bring people with me. Um, and that's, that's the most beautiful part. So even though I didn't, you know, become the news director, I'm still exercising uh, that power of just being in the room. And so how does that work in your authorship and telling your story? It helps me own my story more. Like I, I even look at the the first book. Everybody knows the power of being in position. Like that's my first kid. That was my first child, you know? Um, and I have to love her for everything that she is and everything that she isn't and all the imperfections and grammatical errors and, and things of that nature. It's helped me embrace my story more um, and the imperfections of my story and the, the things that make my purpose unique to me. My authorship has helped me in, in owning that. So let's get into it. What was that you talk about? You had you went on an eight day writing retreat to finish. Everybody knows. So what was the journey from the time that you finished the book till until publication to this point now where you're accepting that it is what it is? Yes, the, the questions are layered. Nikisha, I feel like you're trying to pull the second book out of me in in a podcast, and <laughs> that's just not fair. It's not. That First was, that's of all, a- I didn't tell anyone that you were writing a second book. You told on yourself. Of course. I just I'll, want the story because we're called Black and Published. You're Black. You're published. Tell us how. Absolutely. So from the time that I wrote the book, I went on a journey of entrepreneurship. Um, more, I was more present in my journey of entrepreneurship. I feel like I was always like a low-key entrepreneur. I always had a side hustle. But 2018 is where I made it legit. And so from the time that I finished writing the book, Um, And publishing 90 days later, I also launched my own media company, um, which really gives me gives me more license and more protection to collaborate um, as as a contractor on the projects that I do, because I don't I don't come on anymore as an employee. I'm now hired as a contractor. So they're contracting my business. Um, So that's been a growth spurt. Um, That's been a growing lesson. Um, But that was 2018. And it's the end of 2020. So much has happened since then. And I feel like the most important thing is um, I've become a better Georgia and I've become a better storyteller. And so that's why I'm excited about the second book. That's why I keep talking about it, because I know it's going to be great. I I can feel it. I can see it. I dream about it. I can taste it. Um, But are you writing? But are you writing? But are you writing? As your writing coach, because I am also that, are you writing? accountability for me. Um, I actually, I actually am right. Um, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm not writing as much as I would like to, but I'm doing something. And that that's good. Hmm. Like riding a bike. I feel like, you know, I just picked up the pen again and just started journaling, you know, and it just feels good to have that outlet again, 
but also I learned a lot from the first book. So I'm taking my time (laughs) with the second book. One thing I wish I'd done differently was rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. You know, I felt like maybe as a baby author, I, I maybe rushed the first book a little bit, but also I believe in God's timing and everything happened the way it was supposed to. And I had to learn these lessons this way as a self-published author. So maybe the next next step is bigger because I learned those, those lessons. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about this. So let's talk about that because I think a lot of, a lot of writers don't realize that or some some may, and everyone has a different feeling on it, but the writing is not so much in the first draft. The writing is in the second draft, the third draft, the fourth draft, the 10th draft, until it is as perfect as it possibly can be. And then again, there is still no such thing as a perfect book. So how are you applying that to this new experience of taking your time to write your second book? Well, I've acquired accountability. (laughs) I don't feel like I I had that in a way, but I didn't know what that accountability should look like. So in this season of my life, in this book, it looks like having a writing coach, somebody just to yell at me every now and then and remind me to get back on track. And also the people around me, um, the people who are involved, I took on a lot of um, gifted services and I learned you, you get what you pay for. You know what I'm saying? You know? <laughs> and so now I ask people, no, what is your, what is your price? No, because I'm going to pay you because I have to invest in this, you know? And if that means paying you, <laughs> then that's okay. Cause you're, you're giving me a service. Those lessons that you've learned, I would say the hard way, but that sounds almost too harsh, but those lessons that you've learned from book one to book two have been critical for your growth. What other lessons have you learned along the way as well between finishing book one and now starting to write book two? It's okay to go back. It's okay to go back. Um, I think a year after I published, I published a second edition because it's mine and I wanted to clean it up. You know, I knew that there were some errors, um, grammatical. Um, I, the hardest part for me was telling my truth and not judging myself along the way. Mm. And so it took me so long to write the book to begin with because it's so vulnerable. Like, I feel like anybody who's read my book has seen me naked. When somebody tells me they've read my book, I'm like, oh, (laughs) thank you. What did you see? Like, you're okay? Like, are you fine? Because you just, it makes me feel so vulnerable. It makes me feel so exposed. So to add grammar on top of that and (laughs) um, layout, you know, that I didn't want all those things like kind of keeping me up at night because they did. When I saw my first, um, the first box of books is the first batch of 200. And I, I, on the back cover of the book was um, the parentheses was like backwards at the end. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, everybody is going to see that this quote, the, the, the quotation mark is, is backwards and, and it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. And I'm a journalist and I've been in this business and everybody knows my career. And I worked at, like, I put all this pressure on myself for the book to be perfect. Um, but one of my readers and one of my friends said to me, it's imperfect because you're imperfect. And that's what makes you beautiful. That's what makes your story, your story. But on top of that, as an owner, 
as a self-published author, I had the, I have the rights to go back and, and do another layout and publish a second edition um, and, and really control not only my narrative, but my distribution and my, my reputation. Absolutely. When I read your book, I was struck by how honest it was, which is, again, another reason why I don't write nonfiction and I'm not going to write a memoir because y'all don't need to be in my business, period. (laughs) But you, it almost seems like you thrive off of telling your story. Was it cathartic for you to relive all of those, all of those moments? I finished that manuscript and I took it to my therapist like the next day. And I was like, here, girl, (laughs) I feel like maybe we should have talked about this before. (laughs) Some of these things I never brought up, you know, and so it was cathartic. It was so much of a purge. I saw parts of myself that I hadn't seen, that I buried, that I stuffed away, that I was ashamed of. And so unveiling all of that for myself first helped me see the the beauty in my story and also more of the purpose in my story because a lot of things felt so bad and felt like it were you know uh, attacks against me when really they were things that came to help me along the way and to guide me along my path and it was all necessary your You've coined the term over the last years, not so much term because now you're basically a brand. You're the purpose producer, period. Um, And a lot of that has come out of your story, both your book and your story in media. How does that work when you say, you know, you're taking back your reputation and you're taking back your narrative and your distribution and taking ownership over everything? Just what does that mean for you as the purpose producer doing the work that you do now? Well, I should start by saying that a purpose producer is someone who's using his or her gifts to help others birth their dreams, help others reach their destiny. And so by sharing my story, I'm positioning my story to help other people. I'm positioning myself to help others. And I think a lot of times we hold back those embarrassing moments. Maybe I did share a little too much, but first I wrote for me. So there it is, y'all. You enjoy it or or you don't, but know that I first wrote that book for me. I first wrote for me. And and that is why it's it's the thing that I'm most proud of. Even though it's a thing that sometimes I'm like, ooh, you know, I was a little embarrassed, felt a little guilty, a little shame. I'm so proud though. I'm so proud because I I wrote a book, I told my story. And for so long, my whole career is about telling other people's stories. So to be able to tell mine and to be able to own that, that's that's purpose for me. And so I am the purpose producer, but I'm a purpose producer first. I'm simply in position and I'm encouraging other people to be in position as well. Hence, everybody knows <laughs> the power of being in position. We're all here for each other. And so on that note, can you share a little bit from Everybody Knows the Power of Being Positioned with the Black and Published audience? Oh, no. You said I put too much of my business out here, so it's out here now. It's out here, so let me find out. Um, well, I'm going to read um, the end of Black Boy Joy. Black Boy Joy is uh, chapter three. 
My entire outlook on life changed when I was 11 years old, thanks to the, poli- thanks to the police department of Fort Myers, Florida. Granted, members of my family put me in a life-threatening position, but none of us knew that until a SWAT cop put a gun to my head. That was bad for me. Something worse, though, happened to my little brother. It was 1998, and I was spending a few days with my family. My cousin and his mom were there, too. We'd mostly fill our days trying to make new friends in the neighborhood. We'd play house, hide and seek, and tag. Most of us were at the age where we were horny, but chase. At least everybody else was, I guess. But at the end of the day, someone was always trying to grind up on someone else. Where I'm from, we call that hunching. There were a few boys I liked around there, but there were a few girls too. No matter what, we always seemed to get interrupted by the piercing voice of someone's mama or the luring melodic tune of the ice cream truck. The first three bars were like an alarm signaling that we had to find money and find it fast. We had a routine. First, we'd pat our pockets and check our socks. If I came up short, I'd run to my aunt or even ask someone else's auntie, mama, or grandmama. I'd do whatever it took to get a king-sized drumstick or my ultimate favorite, the flip. That's what people in Southwest Florida call the solid deliciousness I know as the snowball. These things can come in a variety of flavors, pineapple, red, grape, or half and half. I was mostly a pineapple girl, but I also liked for my red to turn into... For my red to turn into pineapple, I used to lick off the glazed sugar, which topped the frozen dessert and eat it with a spoon. But by this time, I was a professional who licked off the glaze before rolling the cup between my hands just to flip it and eat it from the bottom. Nothing said summer in Florida like a flip. If I had known the childhood joy of my ice cream eating innocence was going to end abruptly, I might have slurped down a few more. One day, our summer memories of sugar and raging hormones were interrupted by a loud knock at the door. Then, almost immediately, someone kicked it down. I took off through the kitchen, out the back door, before I could see who it was. I was halfway through the woods behind the house when I remembered that I'd left my little brother behind. I ran back to get him just as fast as as I'd taken off, but a man from the SWAT team stopped me in my tracks. Get down, get down, he shouted as he pushed me to the ground. Get on the floor, put your hands behind your back, now, now. I didn't know what I had done wrong. I just followed his orders. There were men, other men, searching around the house. The adults were cuffed in the living room. But they all started shouting at the SWAT cop. You have to let her go. She's a child. She's just a child. The SWAT officer had used twisty ties to pin my arms behind my back. It hurt. What hurt more was seeing my little brother. The right side of my face was smushed into the ground. And the sight of me hogtied with a gun to my head had him screaming as he stood next to a police car about 30 feet away, a 30 feet away. Let my sister go. Let my sister go. His eyes were no longer visible. I could only see tears in the back of his throat as he screamed with every ounce of strength he had. I could only imagine thoughts, the thoughts that went through his six-year-old brain as he watched the masked man threaten to shoot if I moved. Later, I found out. It was a drug raid, but we were kids. We had no idea what was going on. In the midst of chaos, my aunt yelled, she's only 11. The adrenaline rush of the man with the gun to my head dropped enough for him to see he was pointing a weapon at a middle school aged child. Then he cut the plastic ties off my wrists and let me out of the house. I ran to my brother and held on to him. The rest of the day is a blur. I remember my mom coming to pick us up and the long, 
dark ride back home. Mama tried to make small talk, but I felt empty. I've never really told anyone about the summer the police put a gun to my head because I was afraid of who it might hurt. That moment has emotionally scarred me forever, and I'm done sacrificing my healing for another person's feelings. I just hate when the truth hurts my family. I have never recovered from that day. It was also the day my little brother lost every ounce of his black boy joy. We were both just kids waiting on the ice cream truck. Whew. That hits different hearing it. You read it in 2020 from when I read it when you when your book first came out. That experience is so raw. And yet we've just gone through this hellish year where that experience was life for so many Black people across the country and then was felt viscerally as we were all re-traumatized by watching it on TV. What does that do to you as someone who works, who still works in television? I know now that I have to protect the little girl who I felt no one had protected. Um, I know now that I'm responsible for her healing, that I'm responsible for my healing. And I don't put that on anybody else. I mean, things happen to me and that it happened. It's, it's in the past. I like nobody can go back and like fix it. It's, I can only control how I move forward. And so, yeah, it does hit different. It hits different. It's also triggering. Um, I realized that a lot of times I was having issues not just because it's inhumane, you know, to see this stuff on TV and write, write to VL, okay? Cut your, cut your video to your script and make sure you're writing to every detail. Make Include sure you're the writing. of the gunshots or the screams. The gunshots, the screaming mother. Make sure you start your package with that. That kind of stuff was so triggering for me. And I didn't know that that's what it was. I didn't know that it was triggering trauma that I buried since I was a kid, but here I am wanting to be the best in this business and enduring this trauma all the time because I want to be great and I want people to see me as great, Hmm. but I'm falling apart. Not, (laughs) that's not a good situation here. (laughs) So is your writing a way to protect yourself from everything else that you do in the businesses that you do in the, in the industries that you, that you uh, are a part of? I don't think it's a it's protection just yet. I feel like, like you said, it's very honest. I I feel like sometimes it, depending on who who picks it up, you know, it can be seen as a risk. I could be seen as a liability. She talks too much, <laughs> you know. So that that's in the back of my head too. And so bringing it, you know, full circle to entrepreneurship, I have to keep something going because I do run my mouth. I do talk a lot, but I'm passionate about the stories that need to be told. And my story was the first story that I felt like I needed to tell. So yeah, I feel like it's more of a risk than anything. So what do you want readers to get out of your story? I want them to get healing. I, I love when I hear from readers that, you know, they, they were in position or they felt like something was coming, but they didn't know what it was. God was trying to get their attention and they sat down for two and a half hours you know, and read my book and came out of it with tools to help them in their journey. They came out of it with more clarity about their purpose, 
and more clarity about the reason behind, you know, thing or reasons behind the things that happen to them in their lives or the things that are happening right now. I am my own reader. I often have to go back and pick it up and stir up the purpose inside myself. I have to go stir up my gifts as well. I have to go back and be reminded of where I came from, the process, the journey. Oh my gosh, it's so necessary. So I hope that readers pick it up and they they are healed. Ooh, you say you have to go back and pick it up to stir up the purpose in you. Let's talk about that. How do you, because writing is very much a creative thing. And even though you're telling your story, there is still an element of creativity in it into how you put the words down on the paper. So when you go back and you read what you put out two years ago and you've grown since then, how does that change you when you're in a mood where you don't feel like being everything that you are? I kind of feel like the book is kind of like a journal, you know, like I keep my journals from years, years, years and years because Writing is how I hold myself accountable. So if I, when I go back and I read the chapters, it's like I'm reading notes to myself. It's like I've left myself these breadcrumbs on, on how to get back on track or how to get back to my purpose. So when I feel a little off, I go back to those crumbs. I go back to the piece I dropped that day in Fort Myers. I go back to the piece I, I, pieces I dropped in Shreveport, the pieces I dropped in Tampa, and I connect the dots. Where am I? What is the big picture? Where am I going going from here? It's so necessary to go back and um, <laughs> to go back and read my writing. I mean, I hate to say it like that because I know some people feel like, oh, it's fresh hell. They can't read their work, but I have to go back. I have to go back to see how far I came to really be able to appreciate the writer who I am now. I have to go back and know that I. I deserve more grace with my first book. I deserve to give myself more grace with my first book. I deserve to give myself more grace and more patience with my first company, you know? So just having those notes makes me better where I stand today. Have you embraced your position as an independent author? Actually, I don't feel like I have. I don't feel like I'm... (laughs) I wrote this the other day. I don't feel like I'm a great writer until I get out the second book. And I can hear you. I can hear you. But are you writing? <laughs> and and I am. I am. I'm writing, you know, in my head. I'm getting things out, though. They're coming out. They're coming out of my head. Why do you think it's the second book that would validate you more? So when I wrote the first book, I said, you know, I'm I'm already proud of this book because nobody can take this away from me. This is my story. To be able to tell my story and to be able to tell my truth, the truth in my growth a second time, I feel like it's important for me to see that because again, I like receipts. <laughs> I like receipts and I want to be able to see the growth from book to book. I feel like I, I don't know any great writer who just like has like a one-hit wonder. Like I'm not saying this is a one hit wonder, but who just drops one mixtape and they're like out, like that's it. No, I feel like the beauty in being a great writer is you keep writing and you keep trying and you keep evolving and you don't necessarily write to get better, you know, for people to see you as better. You write to feel better. 
I would argue that you write to be better in all the ways that that means. So I want to shift and go to the speed round and then we're going to wrap up. So what is your favorite book? The mother of the, I just finished The Mother of Black Hollywood. Um, and that's become a, um, a favorite book of mine because of the transparency. It actually made me feel better about <laughs> writing my book to see Jennifer Lewis telling all her business, you know, but Jennifer Lewis can do that because she's Jennifer Lewis, you know, um, Basically. Georgia, Georgia's just out here running her mouth, you know, <laughs> but I feel like there'll be value in that eventually. Um, You'll be Jordan but, Dawkins. <laughs> in reading and listening to her story and her owning the darkest moments in her life. That's it. That's that to me, that's great writing. That's great writing to be able to see that I was a mess at this stage in my life. I was someone I didn't even, I don't even recognize today, but look at who I am today. Look at how far I've come from that. And I think that's also the power of being in, in position to get so far away from something or to get so far away from a place in your life that you can look back and see how much you've grown and you didn't even notice it because time flies when you're growing time flies when you're healing. Who is your favorite author? I'll say Janet Mock, Janet Mock, um, her writing, uh, redefining realness and surpassing certainty. Those books really inspired me to own my story. Um, Janet Mock is a black trans woman. Um, who's, who's a journalist who started out in journalism and now she's a writer on pose and director and she's doing all these things in Hollywood, but it started with her owning her story first. It started with her owning her truth. Um, and that meant coming out to the world, you know, that she'd been um, living as a cis uh, gendered black woman who's actually a trans woman, you know? Um, so yeah, I'd say Janet Mock is my favorite writer. What is your favorite movie? I know you said this is light then. <laughs> this, is, this is quite terrible. This is low lighting. Um, <laughs> I'm going to just say, why did I get married? <laughs> because it's my favorite Tyler Perry movie and it's my favorite Tyler Perry play. Um, I really also love Jill Scott, but it's a movie I can watch at any time. And it takes me to a place um, off in this other world. I, I like movies like that. But yeah, Why Did I Get Married? It's one of my favorite movies. No judgment. What is your favorite song? Do people have answers to these things? Like, yes, people like, have answers to these things. No one has been very quickly quick about them, though. <laughs> it's supposed to be a speed round. It was the intention. Um, I'll say everything is one of, because I have a lot of favorite songs. But I'll say... Running by Emily King is one of my favorite songs because it, it talks about the journey of, um, you know, running from the things that you've become, you know, Ooh. like I wish I could stop running from all the things that I've become, all the things that I've done. That what was, was the best thing about going to FAMU? The network. Indeed. The best thing about going to FAMU was absolutely is absolutely the network and knowing that um they always have my back they always have my back what did you love most about tv news the quick turnaround the instant gratification <laughs> like 
we're doing this show today. All right. And we're going to do it live and we're going to have all these key players and we're going to have a live cam. Okay. We're probably going to put the sky tracker out there too. the production of it and then seeing it happen that same day and then doing it again. I feel like it kind of created this unhealthy adrenaline for me now that I work in on in productions where it could be months. <laughs> it could be years before I see my work, you know? So sometimes I miss that control room adrenaline. And so what do you love most now about entertainment news magazine reality format? I, I guess I, I like what I don't like, and that is be the time, the time, the pacing, the development, the details. Um, you know, taking that time out to really produce a story, segment produce, feel produce, um, seeing it all come together. I really am enjoying the pacing. It's the pacing for me. Why do you like telling your story? It's mine. Nobody else can do it. Nobody knows what I know. <laughs> and what is your superpower? Peace. Hey. <laughs> I have one more from the uh, section that you read in your book. Do you still like a flip? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I was home, like, in October, and it was for sad occasion, death in the family. And my brother came home with these paper bags. Like, I was like, I already know what's in these bags. Like, I'm so excited. It was really, it made me really happy to see that. And, and had a, I had a red one. <laughs> I like that you gave flavors for all the others. And then red is just red. It's not red cherry. It's not red strawberry. It's just red. And there's really pineapple, does. grape, there's orange. And then there's red. <laughs> red. Red is the red is a is an actual factual fa- flavor. <laughs> All right, last question. I'm gonna let you go. So you've been doing a lot of writing to heal, to heal others, and the telling of your story is part of of your business. So when you're dead and gone, and someone sees what you've left behind in your work and in your words, what would you like them to write about your legacy? Look at all the people she helped put in position. I, I, I want people to see the light. Just one light. One light. That's legacy. There it is. Georgia Dawkins. Big thank you to Georgia for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Georgia's book, Everybody Knows the Power of Being in Position. And if you're not following her, follow Georgia on the socials. She's at Georgia Dawkins on Twitter and Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. Also, leave us a rating, a review. Tell us who you want to hear on the show. Give us your thoughts. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter. That's B-L-K and Published. And to keep up with me, head to newrights.com or follow me on the socials. I'm at Nikisha underscore Elise on Twitter and Instagram. That's our show for the week. I'll holla at y'all next time. Peace. Peace.